Welcome to Perfecting Motion, Tribology, and the Quest for Sustainability, a new STLE podcast series that talks with industry professionals about current issues and trends impacting the global tribology and lubricants community. Here's your host, Neil Cantor, STLE Advisor, Technical Programs and Services. Good day to all. This is Neil Cantor, your podcast host for Sustainability, Perfecting Motion, Tribology, and the Quest for Sustainability. In episode five of our series, we had examined steps being taken to improve the sustainability of the internal combustion engine. We know that the internal combustion engine-powered vehicles will continue to be used on roads in the U.S. and globally for at least the next 25 years. One step that can be taken is to identify, in terms of making things more sustainable, develop more sustainable fuels to utilize materials that we no longer are using and are, in fact, treated as waste. Plastics that are no longer used fit in this category. So think about it. We use plastics in all aspects of our lives. Materials have become indispensable, whether we use them in plastic bags, plastic bottles, trash bags, cups, utensils, shower curtains, the list goes on and on and on. So I challenge all of you listening to think about this and look around your house, your apartment, your office, look in your kitchen, your bathroom, your living room, identify all the types of plastics you're using. The Environmental Protection Agency, the EPA, reports as of 2018, 35.7 million tons of plastic waste was generated in the United States. This represented 12% of all municipal solid waste. Plastic waste is also becoming a growing problem, including our oceans. According to NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, at least 8 million metric tons a plastic waste entered our ocean in 2010, and this issue continues to grow. We're actually seeing some of this waste wash up on beaches around the world. So as we in the tribology and lubrication field and those interested are on the road to sustainability, we also need to figure out ways to find and use materials that can be reused and recycled. So frankly, what better way to do this than to take advantage of the large quantity of plastic waste available? And as a chemist, and I look at it that way, I can envision a connection between plastic waste and fuels and lubricants. Both are organic materials. So the question arises about how fuels and lubricants can be made from plastic bags, plastic bottles, and other plastic materials. For answers, we're pleased to have Professor Dion Velachos from the University of Delaware, who's working with researchers to do this very thing, take plastic and plastic waste and convert it into fuels and lubricants. Dion, welcome, and thank you very much for joining us. And let me start here with, we know that there's been a lot of recycling going on with plastics in reducing plastic waste, and we try to do it every day, at least I do. How effective is recycling? We seem to see this plastic problem. We seem to be recycling plastic, but really how effective and how much progress has been made in reducing the waste through recycling? Well, good day to all, and thank you for having me, Neil. So the we do recycle the order of about 15% of all plastics today. So it's a small fraction of all the plastic waste. Most of that actually goes today into incineration. We basically effectively burn the plastic to generate you know, energy. However, the plastic has a lot of additives from the manufacturing. So this generates a lot of emissions that end up you know, in the atmosphere. So the incineration we do today is not very effective. 
There's also something called mechanical recycling. Effectively, what we do, we take the plastic bottles, actually it's used primarily for plastic bottles. We cut them down in small pieces and we process them. In doing that, we actually degrade the quality of the plastic. So when we try to reuse some of that together with new material, the quality of that you know, degrades. So typically what we do, we use that you know, for rags, low quality type of products. So this uh, methodology is also not uh, very effective. And that's why it's not also being used as widely. And so the idea is actually to look into other means of doing the recycling. And the new emerging kind of field is called chemical recycling. For the most part, you know, this is not today commercial. It's not you know, practiced. But there is a tremendous interest in the U.S. and across the globe in developing new, effective, efficient, scalable that we can apply to the large problem technologies. And so that's what we are looking at the University of Delaware and many other research groups. So what led you to consider this? What led you to think about taking plastic, the various types, and trying to convert it into fuels and lubricants? This is a huge problem. This is a huge problem for the country and the globe. And the impact it has on the environment and the health is not even well understood. And, and so it's actually an urgent need to take you know, a step toward solving this problem. We have been having a lot of interest in what we call a circular economy, which basically takes you know, all sorts of waste streams, renewable potential feedstocks like trees, agricultural waste, and convert these things into useful materials. So our experience for the last 10 plus years has been focusing on lignocellulosic biomass, agricultural waste, like you know, corn stover that is left on the field. It could be a tree, it could be brasses or branches from the backyard, and, and try to make you know, something useful. We have a lot of experience in understanding what is useful products, what the market really needs. And lubricants actually has been one of these products we identify that has a huge market. It's a multi-billion dollar industry. And even though we go in electrification, lubricants are being used all over, in industrial, in tractors, in airplanes, in everything. So this is actually a growing market. It has what we call value added. That means for every dollar you spend on the plastic waste to collect, shorten that, and clean it, you can make $100 out of the product you make. And so this actually makes the proposition or the value of the product quite valuable. So we're very interested in identifying you know, potential opportunities in the market can be viable, that the market really wants them and they can be processed and the economics will look good and the environmental impact will look good. So lubricants is one of these areas that we have identified as being very, very promising. Good, both well, thank you, I appreciate that. So in looking at plastics, there are a lot of different plastics and all. So let's, let's go and, and think about... Uh, why did you focus on what are called polyolefins? And for those out here who don't know what polyolefins are, think about a soda bottle. It could be a high-density polyethylene soda bottle that might be two liters or something you might pick up in the grocery store. So why did you think about focusing on the polyolefin side of the plastics? So there are two main reasons. The first one is a practical one. About 56% of all plastics, plastics waste we make today, is actually polyolefins. And in particular, there are two molecules, polyethylene and polypropylene, which are used you know, in everyday consumer, consumer things that you mentioned, like you know, plastic bags, bags, bags etc. 
So they are actually the majority of the plastics. That's you know, number one, right? We need to tackle the biggest problem at hand. The second is actually these are some of the hardest molecules to, to recycle, to do something useful with that. From a science point of view, these are the least understood, the least developed, the most challenging. Uh, in comparison, if you look at the poly, poly, the PET, the poly, you know, the terephthalate, you know, uh, right. you know in the plastic bottles, poly, yeah. right, the polyester, you know, type of molecules, which we have, you know, in the soft drinks, there are already technologies that can recycle you know, this. They need to be improved, but there is already progress in some of those. But so the polyolefins is the big kind of gorilla in the room and the hardest one. So we thought this is the area where you have the most impact. Fair enough. And for those of you out there, just to clarify, polyethylene and polypropylene are basically hydrocarbon based. There's no other functionality which makes them relatively inert and makes them difficult to break down, if you will, more so. Polyethylene terephthalate, which is a polyester material, has what is called an ester group, which is more vulnerable to breakdown because of hydrolysis. Water, it can be vulnerable to water from that standpoint. So that certainly makes sense. So talk in generic terms, if you could, about uh, what you and your team are trying to do, how, do you, how you're trying to take polyolefins and, and convert them into fuels and lubricants. What are you doing and how are you trying to do it? So if we go with the chemical technology, the most common thing comes to mind is to heat them up at high temperatures. So the ancient Greeks invented the word pyrolysis, which basically means no air, just heat up you know, the material and you break it down. Because of the strength of these carbocarbon bonds in these molecules, as you mentioned, are very inert, you need you know, to go to five, six, seven and a half degrees centigrade. These are really high temperatures. At this point, all the bonds start breaking down, and what you form is primarily light gases like methane. Think of that as your propane gas for your grill. And the value of this thing is not very high. We have too much, actually, in the United States, too much of this. We call it shale gas and the fracking, and today we produce too much of that. So there is not really that much in a new market, or we have too much, actually, supply. So the pyrolysis is very high energy, produces a lot of carbon dioxide, a lot of emissions to supply this energy. And you make something that is not very valuable. So the idea here is to, to introduce a catalyst. Okay, And for those with no chemistry background, a catalyst is a material that takes something at low temperatures and it does a little magic. It's converting that into a new product by changing the pathway. Thing that opens up a new highway that can go up on the east coast of the United States, up and down with a completely new seven-lane highway. So that's what the catalyst effectively does. So the key question now here becomes is, what is the right catalyst for that, right? So we looked into the refinery operations that they crack large molecules, similar to the ones we, do, we have in the plastic. Uh, that is a process called you know, fluid catalytic cracking. cracking. We try to crack, we try to break the molecules down, and they take you know, the bottom of the barrel of the crude oil, the refineries, and they try to crack and make more gasoline and more you know, jet fuel for the airplanes. We tried those that did not work. We tried a variety of different known materials from the refineries. It did not work because we deal with solids. And so the idea is actually to heat them up so we can melt. So this thing now becomes kind of a snake that is moving around in a melt. And it's coming in contact with a solid you know, material, a new catalyst, 
that can actually you know, produce the right you know, molecules. But these materials have to have you know, factionalities, have to have groups, some traits of personality, if you like, that is able actually to do multiple things at once. So for one thing, what we do, we remove hydrogen from the molecules, the process called dehydrogenation. And this creates a double bond. It creates an olefin. Now, this olefin becomes much more active. So if you go on an acid, another kind of group, another trait, they start doing cracking. And then if you go on another one and isomerize, means it becomes branched. This branching is what we need in lubricants. The good lubricants have not straight molecules, actually have a lot of branching. And eventually, we need to finish the product by taking these carbocarbon double bonds and convert them into single bonds. And then the molecules become really stable and use them for a long time. That process is the reverse of the very first one, is opposite, it's called hydrogenation. So we have, you know, four or five different functionalities that we need to impart in the materials. And that becomes challenging how to discover those. So the new thing we have done is to think carefully, how can we bring, you know, all these functionalities together? Think about the opera and how we basically, you know, we play uh, the music. We need all the multiple, you know, instruments to play all at once, very well orchestrated, right? And, and this is exactly what these mat catalytic materials, you know, do to produce, you know, fuels or produce, you know, lubricants. Thank you. That's always an eloquent way of explaining it for those who are not that terribly technical in terms of understanding how this is made. And in fact, what you're talking about, hydrocracking and also hydrogenation are steps that are taken not just to make fuels and that sort of thing, but also to make base oils currently, to make group two and group three base oils. Those are base oils that many of my listeners are familiar with from the lubricant world because of what the industry has done. So you're using similar processing to what's done to make conventional base oils at the moment. How far along have you gone in terms of making fuels and lubricants during this technique? What types of fuels, what types of lubricants, or should I say base oils have you made? How, what can you say about where you are in terms of what you're doing? Yeah, this is a, a very good you know, point. The market's evolving. For example, we are moving more towards jet fuels due to electrification as a need of the future. As we discussed, lubricants will be here to stay for quite some time. And it's important to have you know, technology that is tunable, if possible. They can make gasoline or jet or diesel. Diesel is also another one of the fuels because of the trucks too heavy for batteries that are going to go for longer time than cars without electrification, right? So diesel, right. jet fuel in particular for the airplanes and lubricants, we believe are important markets to target. And we actually are able to produce various fractions or change the catalyst to change the fraction of what we make. In terms of the base oils, we are actually the properties between group one and three for our lubricant okay. experts. That's what we are, but they know well that we can actually do uh, hydro-treating and, and convert these things into different grades. So this is not you know, the end of this story. Is we can actually change, as good uh, engineers and chemists, we can change you know, the lubricants and add the additives. This is without any additives. This is the base oil. Sure. Right? So we can actually you know, tune this within quite a lot. But the catalyst is, is critical here to tune in on what we make. So it sounds like you have a lot of flexibility depending on the catalyst and the conditions you use, whether you're making diesel, whether you're making jet fuel, even making base oils. Conceivably, yeah. you can do that because all those are, are of interest to my readers from, from that particular standpoint. So let me go on and ask you about the, the raw materials. 
in terms of doing that. Obviously, their polyolefins make up a lot of it. Can you handle mixtures of plastics? Can you handle, meaning different plastics, different types of polyolefins in the process? So how flexible is the raw material situation? Could you take waste? Could you go to a, a landfill, take out the, the plastic there and just put it into your system and make uh, beneficial products at this moment? Or are you still working to that goal? This is a very important point in terms of the practicality and the needs. At the moment, we treating or we can treat virgin materials. Even the materials actually you can buy have a number of additives like antioxidants and things. So they're right. not really pure, pure, you know, materials. Uh, but we have used also plastic bags, bottles from the lab, more real world, you know, materials. And the technology works almost equally well. Again, these additives do change a little bit, you know, the performance. But this is something we work, I think, you know, for the most part, uh, mixed plastics, mixed polyolefins, even polyolefins with, even with PVC, getting to the real world, you know, things of the landfill. We have developed technology. We have developed technology actually to treat that, right? Right. Let, so, let me interrupt you with a second because people may not know what PVC is. PVC is polyvinyl chloride that's used in things like garden hoses, tubing, and that sort of thing. It's probably one of the most widely used plastics. Sorry, Dion, I just wanted to make people clear. Please continue. Absolutely. So... We haven't taken no landfill, you know, material yet. You have to wash it. You have to make sure, you know, there is also too many other things like aluminum, too many additives. So the technology needs to be developed further to just not be able to go in the landfill and treat it. But we can treat, you know, industrial quality. And if we have only polyolefins today in a recycling can, we can treat that today, right? So that are more steps need to be done in terms of separating problematic elements, fractions from the landfill that need to be separated, that you are not just feeding in a chemical reactor. So that part still needs to be developed. Fair enough. And in terms of polyvinyl chloride or PVC, what about the chlorine element, chloride, the, the chlorine element of it? That obviously, from my background, can be hazardous, that can be difficult to deal with under high temperature or dispose of, and of course, it's not that sustainable. How do you handle that? Yeah, so uh, this is a very good you know, point. We look at PVC because it's a very problematic plastic. This chlorine element actually kills the catalyst to start. So if you okay. put in a polyolefin together with PVC, there your process dies, right? So one of the very first things we need to treat towards the real landfill is PVC. So the way we try to, to again, if we add it to the reactor, it's going to kill everything. It also, if you do a pyrolysis process this high temperature, it produces... HCL. So this acid is very corrosive, very dangerous, you know, stuff. So uh, this is part of the incineration issue. If you start burning, for example, PVC itself. So what we try to do, we try to selectively remove the PVC, capture it in, in the media. So this actually you know, does not go into the catalyst. But we have seen a very interesting aspects. A little bit of PVC can actually help the catalytic process itself. So which means that we don't need to purify the PVC 100%. And that, you know, from an economic energy standpoint, is important. So having a little bit of PVC there, it looks like it may actually not be quite, you know, good enough for the process. So much more to, to be done, but it looks promising that we can actually remove one of the, I think, the biggest probably challenge in the whole real plastics landfill, you know, material, is that they're going to have, you know, some of the plumping and other, you know, materials having PVC in them. Right. And for those who are not familiar, HCL, as Dion indicated, hydrochloride, when you add water to it, it's hydrochloric acid. It's very acidic, very corrosive, very dangerous. Also, as it's indicated, difficult in terms of the process. So let me try to finish up here in terms of asking you 
Where are you in terms of commercialization of this type of technology? How far along are you and how far do you have to go to get to the point where you're going to feel comfortable with this type of technology or even technology in the field in general, not just what you're doing, but what other your colleagues and other people are doing in this area? How soon or how quickly are we going to see this type of uh, approach where we're going to get fuels, lubricants out of plastic waste? Um, the experience, you know, Neil shows that it takes about 10 years from the initial invention, about 10 years, to actually commercialization. One needs to develop the technology. Then you have to take it out of the lab into what we call a pilot plant, try the ideas out at larger scale, and then try them in the building the actual plant. I think with the information technology, the IT, data science, and other things, high throughput, we are actually start shortening this time down from 15 years, maybe to half a dozen years. But in reality, in reality, to be able to actually get even through the approvals of the companies for setting up a new plant and build it and the design, et cetera, it takes a year or two just to do this piece, right? So to be realistic, it's going to take you know, a few years before we get there. And a kind of a closing remark, the plugs have other challenges, one of which they don't heat well, okay? They are actually very poor. You put them in the microwave oven uh, and you heat your food, but not the plastic. So how do you really are going to heat them at a large scale? It is a challenge. We are working on this as well, but I think this is another technical you know, challenge, the landfill itself with the impurities. And how are we going to do that at a large scale? These are 350 billion tons, million tons per year. How are we going to, you know, to treat all of these? So there are some challenges, you know, there, uh, but, but there's a lot of promise. I think there is a lot of press from society uh, and, um, and, and the corporate is very much interested. I think these are actually propelling powers to make that happen. It's not only people are interested in this. The chemical industry realizes that this is not sustainable and we need to do something. And I think, you know, having an interest from the companies who make this and use this is very, right. very important. So... I see this as an opportunity to actually know in the next decade to actually change the landscape. So you could see, here we are, it's 2022, the beginning of 2022, that in maybe 10 years, by the end of this decade, we could have something commercial and doing it. And, and I agree, I see the same thing. I see a lot of companies involved who make polyolefins and other polyolefin uh, polymer resins very interested in doing this because of the pressures to reduce plastic waste. So they're very much involved in this type of pressure, as you mentioned, with the circular economy. We in the lubricant industry see this as very viable. We can use base oils and other lubricants and fuels from waste. This is a renewable, recyclable type aspect. We could use it and recycle that. And again, reduce the amount of dependency we have on the current petrochemical uh, stream, which is being, in my view, being phased out. So we appreciate that. So anyway, I appreciate your giving us an update and probably will want to have you back at some point in a few years or so as we keep doing the podcast, Dion, to get an update. Because we, as part of what we're doing as we're moving forward in sustainability, you're a sustainable aspect in terms of what you're trying to do. You're your team. So I appreciate your time. Thank you very much. And we look forward to hearing back from you as to how things are progressing. Thank you so much for having me. As we continue discussing how plastic waste can be used to produce fuels and lubricants, I'd like to first introduce some figures that were produced in a report published in February 2022 by the Organization of Economic Cooperation and Development, which is also known as the OECD. One of the objectives of sustainability is to develop a circular economy. We've talked about that throughout the podcast series, where material produced can be recycled and reused uh, repeatedly. 
The OECD report indicates that only about 1.2% of all plastic being used is being used in circular innovation. And currently, 9% of all plastics used globally are recycled. 22% are mismanaged, which leaves remaining 69%, which the report really didn't say what happened, so presumably it's being used and dumped, unfortunately. Compounding the problem is that global plastic production doubled over the past 20 years to 460 million metric tons, which is about 1 trillion, with a T, pounds. Global production of recycled plastic in the same 20-year period did quadruple the 20 million metric tons, or about 64 billion pounds, but that's still less than 10% of total plastic production. And in terms of global plastic waste generation, that's doubled over the past 20 years, with two-thirds of the waste having been produced within the past five years, and 40% of that waste coming from packaging. So think about it when you're tearing up a package or something or they're putting a package together and you have some waste go, waste plastic that you didn't use, it's going, it's ending up in a waste dump somewhere. Some other telling numbers. Each individual in the U.S. produces about 221 kilograms or about 487 pounds of plastic waste per year. Europeans are better. They generate about half the waste. And one other critical issue that the report talked about is microplastics, which are leakage of microplastics in the environment is growing concern. And these are materials that are smaller than five millimeters and smaller than two-tenths of an inch. And sources of microplastics, including resin pellets, synthetic textiles, road markings, and tires. And besides showing up in the oceans and on beaches, they're also showing up in their air. Recent studies that I've seen indicate that microplastic is all in our environments. So that makes it Harder. And then the other bottom line issue is, in summary, plastics account for 3.4% of total global greenhouse gas emissions, which, of course, is something we're trying to reduce. So with that sobering assessment, and before I introduce our next guest to talk about the potential for converting plastic waste in large quantities into fuels and lubricants, let me make one other comment on where things are in terms of technology from that standpoint. Plastics are lately petrochemical-based. They come from crude oil. And for those of you who are following the news at this point, period, as we take this in, in March of 2022, the price of crude oil is now well over $100 a barrel. And I don't think I have to tell most of you listening what the price of gasoline or diesel is in terms of how many dollars per gallon it is. So with that said, let me bring in my guests, and those include Dr. Robert Kennedy, Dr. Ryan Hackler, and Dr. Max Delferro all from the Chemical Sciences and Engineering Division of Argonne National Laboratory. Robert, Ryan, and Max, thank you very much for taking time to speak with me. Certainly. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having us. Let me start here. Since I've talked about the problem, the waste issue, and I've talked about it throughout this particular podcast, let's move to where you and your colleagues are in terms of what you're doing to try to convert plastic and plastic waste into fuels and lubricants. I'd like you to consider doing it. And what steps have you taken to move the process forward on your end? We started to work on this problem more than five years ago, when probably very few people at the time were really thinking about the plastic accumulation problem. If you think about plastics, I many plastic was discovered more than 90 years ago. We spent 90 years from a scientific and technological point of view to make this plastic resistant, inert, very, very cheap. But only just recently, we really start to think about what we can do with this, with this plastic. And we really need to develop new science and new technology to really tackle this problem. What, what we are learning from a scientific point of view, and this is, we really need to thanks and the knowledge that the Department of Energy 
for initial funding, both from a basic energy science, that is the, where we discover the fundamental understanding, to ARPA-E, for example, or the other offices, the applied science of, of DOE, to really try to work with, with company, uh, big and private company, to really transfer the technology from the lab to the market. One of the big problems of plastic that we have too many kind of plastics. We have, if you know, there is seven numbers with a symbol that the general audience think that plastic are recyclable. That is, and this is not true. We have only technology right now to recycle, for example, number one and number two. And there are plenty of opportunity from a scientific and technological point of view to really tackle the other numbers three, four, five, six, and seven. With our group, we really start to think about particularly polyolefin, what we can do, for example, with HDPE, LDPE, and LLDPE that account for roughly 50% of the total plastic that we have on the market. Yeah, Max, let me interrupt you for the audience's standpoint. HDPE is high-density polyethylene, LDPE is low-density polyethylene, and LLPE is linear low-density polyethylene. And I'd also note that with polyolefins, we're also looking at polypropylene. And my guess, guys, is those two, and we talked about it earlier, those two will make up the bulk of the polyolefins that are out there right now being used. Right. I do want to point out, Neil, based on the numbers you were talking about previously, that the plastics that we're targeting, these different types of polyethylene and polypropylene, they contribute to a vast amount of those single-use plastic waste that you were talking about that people use one time for a type of packaging, whether it's food, clothing, shipment, something like that, and then immediately dispose of. Thank you. Go ahead, Max. Please continue. You're talking about the various types of polyolefins. Oh, yeah, the of plastics. And in our center, in our group, and it's composed by Argon, Northwestern, Ames Lab, University of California, Santa Barbara, University of South Carolina, University of Illinois, and Cornell University, we are looking at catalytic methods methods to deconstruct plastic waste to make a new product that have an economic value that is higher than the starting material. And I assume that's what you mean by the term upcycling. Upcycling, correct. That is a okay. pure economical value. Economic value. We want to make something, we want to image right. the plastic waste as a new and clean feedstock. Right. So instead of talking recycling, which goes around as people talk about, upcycling is moving to a more value-added type of product. Correct. And we thought, also with the help of our of my previous colleague, Dr. Alice Erdemir at Argon, that we could transform plastic waste, particular polyolefin, in a tribological oil, particularly polyalpha olefin. Because the chemical structure after the construction of using our catalytic method has really resembled the polyalpha olefin, particularly polyalpha olefin 10 and uh, polyalpha olefin 4 in terms And Robert and Ryan really discovered this catalytic method and optimized the condition to obtain very high yield of almost more than 90% yield of liquids from plastic waste. Thanks, Max. Why don't you guys talk about the challenges of doing this and how does this catalyst work in a generic way to break down what Max had indicated, and I agree with as a chemist, is a very inert material. Polyethylene, polypropylene are highly inert. Brian, Robert? Yeah, so I just want to take a step back just so that we can make it clear to the audience kind of what it is that we're dealing with as a material and kind of what we're aiming to do, right? So as you mentioned from the onset, Neil, that 
plastic is a petrochemical derived material, right? You have crude oil that you can process and refine to create a feedstock that can ultimately go towards plastic that we can then use for various types of applications. What we're trying to do is essentially take that spent material that, as you guys had mentioned, has 90, almost 100 years of development and research into as an energy rich material. And rather than spinning the wheels and recycling it into the same material, create a higher value by essentially extracting that material and create a new product. And so what we're talking about here with lubricants, for example, for our process is one of the more straightforward applications. But as we move forward, we hope to look at all of different types of hydrocarbon based materials. So this can include waxes, this can include cosmetics, this can include detergents. And so one of the things we're looking at from the beginning is lubricants. And so what we're trying to do here is take what is essentially trash. It's a real world post-consumer plastic that someone had used to carry their lunch that Amazon had used for shipping containers. There's any number of real world variables for something that is a rich feedstock that we can process, but also taking into account the different types of contaminants and additives that you should expect from this type of material. So anything from say a candy bar has dyes, has metals and metal oxides to show maybe advertisement, the nutritional value, all these different types of components that are needed, but ultimately contribute to a very sophisticated, complex material that ultimately at the end of the day, we're saying we want to process it into a much more straightforward, more precise and more narrowly defined material. So how do you go about that? I assume you started off with virgin material. In other words, fresh polyethylene, polypropylene. And I saw that from the information you sent me. So how does it work in generic terms? How does the catalyst you guys have developed work to, shall we say, chop it up and spit out something that's maybe more fluid, if you will, because the fuel and lubricant is fluid, whereas polyethylene, polypropylene, of course, is, is solid. Yeah. So the process that we're doing is what's called hydrogenolysis. So that's olysis cleaving with hydrogen. So we're using hydrogen to help break the bonds in the plastic to make shorter and shorter molecules. And so what we're really trying to do here with the supported metal catalysts that we're using is use metal and hydrogen and the contact with those two with the polymer to break the polymer into shorter and shorter pieces, but do so in a way that we are selectively getting to molecular weight ranges where we're making things that are usable as lubricants. Yeah, this goes back to what Max was mentioning that for our process in particular, not only are we creating these liquid products that we hope to use for lubricant applications, but we're trying to do so in a way that is as efficient and economically favorable as possible. We don't want to be producing methane, ethane, all of these gases that we can't utilize for this type of lubricant application. We're trying to basically convert as much of the plastic material that we harvest towards specifically this one type of product, in this case, a lubricant. Plus, if you're going to do methane, that's defeating the purpose from a, from a sustainability standpoint. Methane, as you guys know, is a very potent greenhouse gas, more potent even than carbon dioxide. Absolutely. So, you know, yeah. Methane, for those of you who don't realize what it is, is natural gas, for those for the main component of natural gas. So how have you come along in terms of, shall we say, structuring the catalyst, the metal catalyst, so you can hone in on, shall we say, a particular type of material, whether it be a fuel or a lubricant type thing or, or some sort of a base intermediate to make it. How are you coming along with doing that, at least with the virgin material? And then how, of course, are you doing it? Or if you have gotten to the point of looking at plastic waste, where you've taken a, a hodgepodge of stuff 
and throw it in with your catalyst to see what comes out. Yeah, I think Max and Robert can talk more about this, but to preface this discussion, I think it's important for maybe the audience to know what chemically is distinct between something like a fuel to a lubricant product to a wax, anything like that. So the fuels, be it the things we put in our airplanes or our cars, any of these types of motor applications, these are usually much thinner liquids. So if you, obviously you've seen gasoline, this can range from, it's essentially a hydrocarbon species where the carbons constitute anywhere between six, seven, eight carbons, upwards to 10, 11, 12, depending on what it is exactly. Whereas lubricants have a larger range for how many carbons constitute that material. So lubricants can range from C20s, C30s, C40s, and so on and so forth. And they can be distinct based on their structure compared to say like waxes. So they're one of the biggest distinction apart from the size of the molecule is how they are shaped, how they connect to one each other. And so knowing that we have to basically adopt a different strategy depending on what type of product we're aiming at. If we're looking for smaller molecules, we might have to change either the parameters of our process or change the catalyst itself so that we selectively get either a smaller product or a larger product or even a differently shaped product. And just to give a sense of scale, the plastics that we're talking about, those will then be thousands to millions to billions of carbons in one molecule of the plastic. And thank you, Robert. I appreciate that from our audience's uh, standpoint. How well are you doing in terms of getting to a, shall we say, a distribution of carbon atoms, whether it be for fuel or for lubricants, that would, shall we say, be comparable to what's already out there made, shall we say, from crude oil? Yeah, this is the beauty of our technology and our catalyst. And it is also a little bit different from previous or other systems. Polyolefin or polymer plastic in general are, are very, is a broad distribution of chains called PDI, polydispersity, as a large polydispersity. And what we discover with, particularly with the, the system that Ryan and Robert has developed, uh, we are able now to make a very narrow distribution of products. And that is very, very important, for example, for cribological application. In fact, we are working, for example, with uh, Chevron Phillips to transfer this technology and they are test our liquids, cribological liquids, now in-house to see for possible application and possible, possible partnership with us on, on this. Right. And for the audience, no, Chevron Phillips is a major producer of polyolefins as well as lubricant, alpha olefins used to make uh, a well-known lubricant material used in lubricants called polyalpha olefins or PAOs. So I would imagine, Max, you don't have to tell me or tell the audience, but I imagine all of those are in play at this point. Yeah, and, and it's very interesting. We didn't know, but at the beginning, when we start to really discover this new process and new, and new technology, the tribological properties of this liquid from plastic ware really, really are matching the, the technological properties of synthetic oil that okay. are making on purpose. And this is quite interesting. In addition, we also did a life cycle analysis, going back to your point before about the clean energy. If we can make synthetic oil from plastic waste, we could save roughly 70 to 80% of CO2 emission. And this could have a big, big impact. 
Yeah, huge. That obviously is huge. Now, have you done any scaling up at this point or you're leaving that to your partners to scale up uh, at this point? You guys, I assume you obviously lab quantities, kilo quantities. Where are you in terms of the scale up process at the moment? Yeah. So right now we are in the lab quantities. We've taken virgin polyethylene, virgin polypropylene, as well as started diving into mixed virgin polyolefin waste, as well as we've even done some forays into um, bubble wrap, post-consumer bubble wrap from shipping companies. Um, yeah, packaging. You know, yeah, exactly. Amazon and the like. And we've been able to all convert this into these liquid lubricant products that, as Max was saying, as a base oil from our initial investigations have been fairly comparable to polyalpha olefins, to the some of these higher end synthetic lubricants. And so one of the things that Robert and I are doing right now as we transition from the lab scale is we're looking to start a company and go towards the kilogram scale to have a lot of kind of investigative power to really implement this to scale to have as a product that we can sell to consumers. And I would imagine you're going to look at other polymers as well as other mixtures in terms of obviously the ultimate answer here is to take what's being dumped at any particular municipality, mix it all in and then put it into a reactor and do it. Absolutely. Uh, Yes, that would be the ideal. That would Um, be the ideal. So let me, me, go ahead, Robert, please. Well, to get, to get back to your earlier question. So what we have found is that by tuning the catalyst design and the conditions of the reactor, we can tune from the high end of fuel molecular weights up to the highest end of lubricant molecular weights and get a very low dispersity, very narrow molecular weight range of products. And then we can tune and control that with our process. So we can hit the viscosities and molecular weight ranges that might be needed for different applications. Yeah. Robert, one of the things I was found that in one of the papers you sent me, which is very kind of you to do, was that you also indicated you may be doing something with alkylated aromatics, which for the audience says are intermediates used in things like surfactant production and other things. Where are you with that in terms of making an aromatic out of it? We are all collectively part of a DOE-funded center called the Institute for Cooperative Upcycling of Plastics. And one of our teams out at UC Santa Barbara, which Max mentioned earlier, is working on making alkyl aromatics. And so they have found that by working in low hydrogen concentrations, they can actually get to directly forming dialkyl aromatics. That is a benzene ring that has two long alkyl chains off of it. And that is a structure that is very valuable and is currently made through a very energy intensive process. So this might be a way to very directly make those chemicals that are in demand with a much less energy intensive process. And so, right. And obviously all of that's in play here is that all these products, fuels, lubricants, surfactants, if you will, we're talking about alkylated aromatics can all be recycled. So it can be all reused repeatedly. So that's where the, the plastics are going eventually into a circular economy, if you will, circular mode, which is what's truly exciting. So let me you know, finish up here by asking, it sounds like the future is very bright here in terms of what you're doing. How quickly are we going to get there? How quickly are we going to get to the future? I think a lot of our audience is thinking, well, we got all this plastic, we're doing this. How quickly are we going to be able to make something productive out of it? So what's your crystal balls telling you? Neil, I'm a very positive person. This is an exciting time for scientists and engineers in this area. Clearly, one technology cannot solve all the plastic problems. We need 50, 100 different 
technology and there are all the hands are on deck right now to really try to solve the plastic problem. And again, I'm a positive person. I think we will do it. I don't know when. I think it's going to be in a very short term, but we will solve the plastic problem. I would say we're already starting to see a couple of products coming online of what are called advanced recycling plastics that are polyethylenes usually that are being made by converting plastic waste into ethylene and then repolymerizing. So I I think that that's going to be the first major product we're going to see hitting the market. But what you're looking at with what we're working on here in the Institute for Cooperative Upcycling of Plastics and other centers like this is really looking at what are the advanced higher value chemicals that need to be made if we're going to wean ourselves off of petroleum that need to be brought back into the supply chain and how do we get to those from plastic feedstocks? But at the moment, I think you've got a lot of people out there who are anxious and impatient about it with the price of gas where it is right now, which I think is going to help spur this thing along. I don't like to say this is a positive development because a lot of people are hurting paying gas, people including who are listening to the podcast, but this may be the way to spur this thing to happen. Absolutely. Definitely. That's that fun. All right, guys, listen, thank you. I appreciate your time very much. I wish you well. And as we move along with this podcast, which is Perfecting Motion, the Search for Sustainability, and the move towards sustainability, which you guys are doing, we may very well check in with you guys again just to see where you are, how much progress you've made, what you've come up with, and what some of the challenges are that you overcome, and what are some of the future challenges that you need to overcome. So thank you all very much for your time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Perfecting Motion, Tribology, and the Quest for Sustainability, brought to you by the Society of Tribologists and Lubrication Engineers, the premier technical society serving the tribology and lubrication industry. STLE's mission is to advance the science of tribology and the practice of lubrication engineering in order to foster innovation, improve the performance of equipment and products, conserve resources, and protect the environment. STLE supports its members with a variety of technical, educational, and professional development resources and programs. To learn more about STLE, please visit our website at www.stle.org.